Welcome to ADHD Flourishing about living awesomely with autism and ADHD. You deserve recognition for both the challenges and the superpowers of this unique neurotype. Let's celebrate wisdom and support from real life stories and talk strategies to manage the difficulties of day-to-day life so we can move beyond that to thriving and building a sustainable and awesome life. If you want to be here, you are accepted here and you belong. I'm your ADHD host, Mattia Murray. Let's do this. Welcome to my guest, Fergus Murray. They are also the child of Dinah Murray, who is one of the main founders of the idea of monotropism as a theory and and sort of explanation for uh I mean, really all of autism, but you know, it's just like <laughs> this developing idea that I have found personally very meaningful. And uh, I know that Fergus and I also have some other things in common, including a love of large puppets and music. So <laughs> I am very, very excited to have them on today. This is something I've been looking forward to uh, for a while. And I'm so, so happy that you're here. And is there anything you'd like to add about the way that you are? thinking about yourself in the world right now i am a science teacher by by profession um and i'm also the the chair of autistic mutual aid society edinburgh amaze awesome so i know that our sort of overarching conversation today is about monotropism uh i'm also excited to hear how you pronounce that i know i've heard you say it in other <laughs> contexts but we have different accents um and i would love for you to first just describe sort of for a beginner, sort of basic, how you how you usually intro that to people. Um, so I, I pronounce it monotropism, um, but I'm endlessly fascinated by all the different ways that people find to pronounce it. Yeah, there, there, there's there's never been great consistency about that. Monotropism is the tendency for someone's attention and processing resources to be pulled in more strongly by their interests or whatever captures their attention than it is for other people. So. Monotropic people tend to get pulled into attention tunnels where they're likely to miss things outside of that. And it tends to be harder for us to switch attention once we're fully engaged with something. And I want to give some examples of what that looks like uh, in my life, just to kind of give people some, some, you know, but one of the things we talk about a lot, for example, is task switching or difficulty, you know, context switching between things. And it's one of the things that can make it hard for autistic folks in a traditional workplace, for example, because it's just expected that you're going to context switch and task switch, you know, sometimes multiple times a minute, literally when you're looking at, you know, email and people popping in and talking to you and the amount of frustration that that can create for folks um, is, is just not recognized and not supported in a lot of settings. But if you know that this is an issue for you, if you know that you are more monotropic, uh, and, and that this is an issue for you. Um, like for me, for example, there are days when I feel it's easier to handle context switching. And then there are days when I need my, and I work at home, right. And I have control over my time, but even then I need my, you know, noise canceling headphones on, um, playing something really, really chill and ambient and kind of background. Uh, and I need, you know, my door to be closed and sometimes locked. I need to know that basically I'm not going to be interrupted. Um, when I was in a day job in a kind of open office plan, there was no way to create that uh, space. I could put headphones on, but that didn't really stop, you know, the peripheral vision of people walking by. Um, and then, so anyway, this is that those are just some kind of really basic, I think, work related things where that comes up in people's personal lives. Something that I hear from people a lot is, you know, I'm trying to express something or have this conversation and the other person just keeps switching topics or kind of, you know, that we're not, we're not like finishing the conversation. And then it can feel like it can feel like you're being obsessive by trying to kind of hold on to it or, or like, it's kind of like the feeling for me is like, I can't let it go until we've kind of wrapped it up. Um, and so little practical thing I've ended up doing sometimes is I'm just like, you know what? Okay. If this is not working <laughs> as a live conversation, I'm just going to send an email so that it can be out of my head. Um, mm-hmm. and that I feel like I can have said some of the, anyway, so we don't, I, I just wanted to kind of give some examples because I know that, um, is something people ask for. <laughs> 
Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting one because um, sometimes it sort of goes the other way where someone in conversation with a monotropic person feels like they're jumping all over the place. But from the point of view of the monotropic person, these are all like re closely related things. You know, it's not really like we're jumping from topic to topic to topic. It's like we're perceiving the topic as being larger than the other person is. Oh, totally. Yeah. And that, that, especially when you've done the background thinking in your own head and to you, it feels obvious. Yeah. <laughs> you're like that yeah, these yeah. are connected because you've already thought through it, but you're not explicating that. So the other person's yeah. just like, yeah, wait, yeah, what, yeah. what? Yeah. 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 So, totally. so many miscommunications, misunderstandings between people with different cognitive styles arise because of things seeming obvious to one person that are not obvious to the other. Yeah. So I, I just because this is the conversation that I want to have, and I feel like a lot of the basic stuff is sort of available for people to find, and we'll obviously link to your writings and website and so forth. Um, I'm really, really curious to talk to you about your sort of developing and current understanding of all of this from having been in this world basically since infancy, right? And having heard about this from a very, very young age, I'm super, super curious what you feel like um, whether this is from your personal perspective or sort of from the research perspective, just like where we're at with all of this right now. Let's start with a little bit of the history, right? So um, my mum started thinking about autism around about the late 1980s, early 90s, um, when she'd recently finished her PhD on the relationship between language and interests. And um, a linguist friend lent her Uta Frith's Autism, un understanding the enigma, or that might not be quite the exact right name, but and she read that and sort of thought, "Hang on, Utafrith really hasn't explained the enigma at all." Um, but I, I think I kind of can um, by applying basically what she'd been thinking about for her PhD, um, which she, she was doing when I was a small child. So she, you know, posited that the basic difference between autistic people and other people was that. Autistic people concentrate their attention more strongly on a smaller number of interests at any given time, which you know, has all kinds of knock-on effects for communication and how we live our lives and how we experience things. So she started presenting and writing about this in 1992. Um, so the, the term monotropism is actually slightly older than the term neurodiversity. It's taken a while for it to sort of gain widespread acceptance. And she was presenting about it and talking about it and meeting autistic people and people who work with autistic people all through the 1990s, 2000s. In 2005, she got together with her friend Mike Lesser and Wen Lawson. Um, when they'd met a few years before and turned out, Wen had basically hit on almost the same idea as Dinah independently. Um, so they worked on it together for very for many, many years. And in 2005, they published in the journal Autism, um, Attention, Monotropism, and the Diagnostic Criteria for Autism, in which they set out very clearly how all of the DSM-4 criteria for autism could be explained by monotropism, um, which, honestly, none of the, the leading theories of autism did at all. Um, you know, they explained some of the things to some between various different theories, they could sort of just about explain everything. But like if you don't have a theory that explains the whole thing that you're trying to talk about, then you know the the scientific approach is to keep on looking for a better, more comprehensive theory. And she kind of thought that publishing in autism, you know, like the, the biggest autism journal, probably anyway, would get the, the autism establishment standing up and taking notice. But it just kind of didn't really. There was a slow trickle of of responses every now and then. That two thousand and five paper would be cited, um, but there, you know there were no serious critiques published. Most of the autism establishment just ignored it, and you know I think that's partly because they were coming from out outside of academia and outside of you know the autism was all psychology establishments. Um, you know, my mum had a PhD in psycholinguistics. Um, Mike was largely un unqualified actually but just a brilliant mathematician like he um yeah he did some seriously impressive things in in his time um when i think didn't quite have a phd yet in autism when they published um he quite soon after that paper i'm not sure if i got the timeline right there but sometime around about then he he finished 
his PhD on monotropism, um, on single attention and associated cognition in autism, as he put it. Diner and Wen both together and independently sort of went around the world lecturing people about this, giving talks at autism conferences and, and training people. Um, and, you know, constantly met autistic people who would be like, oh, right, finally, someone's actually describing my experience in the theory. Um, and, you know, people who work with autistics, autistic people professionally, uh, having their minds blown, being like, oh, and, you know, putting the ideas into practice and seeing what a huge difference it can make to have this non-pathologizing and clearer explanation of autistic experiences. But by the time I, I published Me and Monotropism, Unified Theory of Autism um, in The Psychologist magazine, which is the British Psychological Society's sort of in-house magazine, um, I published that in 2018 online. I think officially it was published in print in 2019. And it was, it was their most read article of the year. And like a lot of people obviously were exposed to the idea who hadn't been before. And I don't want to take too much credit. I feel like it, it, by that point, um, there was already a sort of like a, a you know, an upward trend. There, there were more and more people citing monotropism and talking about monotropism by then. But certainly in the years since, um, it's been more and more prominent. So my mum died two years ago, two and a half years ago now. And by the time she died, uh, she could see that her life's work had finally been achieved, basically, that like, a critical mass had been achieved with monotropism where people were taking it seriously. Research was happening. Autism researchers who, who, who published things where they obviously should have mentioned monotropism were actually getting pulled up on it, which hadn't happened nearly enough before. And while my mum had cancer and was sort of confined to her bedroom in Fife, a group of us started working on the monotropism questionnaire. Um, this was Richard Woods's idea, and I, I, I was running a mailing list for people who are interested in monotropism, mainly researchers. So we we got together a set of candidate questions and refined it in a not, not terribly systematic way, I have to say. But we did a good enough job to, to put together a, a working monotropism questionnaire, and we got a, a master's student at the University of Edinburgh, Valeria Garal. She ran a sort of a validation study for her master's main research project and got more than a thousand responses in just under a week, which is fairly extraordinary for a, a master's project. Yeah, that really is. Yeah. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, by that point, there were a lot of a lot of autistic people around who um, were excited about the idea of monotropism. You know, it's very aware that it had this idea had been bouncing around for 30 odd years without really gaining very much traction among among psychologists so that study is still awaiting peer review um it's currently with british medical journal so it's still at a fairly early stage of development really i'm you know I'm, i think there's more work to be done on it but that has sort of gone viral in the last six months or so um we put up a preprint of the, the paper the validation study and um, you know, put it on a preprint server, as you do, put up the questions in a, an accessible format uh, as with a Creative Commons license, so that in principle, anyone can use them um, as long as they attribute the original authors. But we were a little bit surprised when um, it went viral on TikTok. I, I'm, I'm barely on TikTok myself. Um, I can't. I probably did have an account at the time that, that Dr. Joey Lawrence uh, made a video in which she described it as the the best autism assessment she'd ever seen, uh, which was seen it had been seen by like upwards of three million people, which is a little bit maddening because it's not an autism assessment, right? It's it's an assessment for monotropism. Um, and yes, monotropism was developed as a theory of autism, but part of the reason that we wanted to develop a measure of it is to assess the degree to which autistic people and monotropic people are the same population. Um, you know, there might be monotropic people who are, are not autistic. 
we don't really know. I mean, in the validation study, you know, there's a certain level of monotropism above which there were simply no allistic people. I'm um, I'm in that category. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, mine was mine said I was uh, more more monotropic than 100% of allistic people, and I was like, oh, it's yeah, that happens. Like but if if you're that monotropic, then you're also more monotropic than about 90% of autistic people. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, it it had that too. Well, and the other thing I, I wanted to say about the the like how hard it is to do that research is the stigma against and the misunderstanding around what autism even is is so high that if somebody is says, oh, well, I'm at this, you know, if I'm on one end of the bell curve, if I'm extremely monotropic, but I couldn't possibly be autistic. Like I hear that a lot in ha- academic circles. I know someone who uh i assumed was autistic and when i said something about it at some point he was like oh no i'm neurotypical and i was like well you're obviously not neurotypical. <laughs> like, I don't know. what would that possibly mean and you're anyway it was just funny um but i i think that that i know a lot of people like that who are so monotropic and so they seem you know multiply neurodivergent and also you know mm-hmm. giftedness whatever that means but you know like that that's like a your brain seems to work in a different way. It's not just faster, right? Anyway, all these things. Um, I think it's so, what I like about monotropism is the ability to describe something really meaningfully that seems true. Like this seems obvious when you look at it and like look at the how it fits together and what it explains. And because it's more um, strengths-based or, or at least more neutral, right? It's just saying, this is how your brain works. This is how yeah, you function. Yeah, fundamentally, it's neutral. It's yeah. neutral. Uh, it's so different than, well, do you have this huge bucket of problems over here, which is what how I kind of think of what you described as just like all these different theories that are currently trying to explain autism. And I feel like part of why the establishment doesn't love this idea is, is because it's so neutral. And all we're so used to talking about autism in this it is one of the worst things that can possibly happen to your child like it's one of the worst things you could possibly experience and that's so much the conversation still that i feel like it's really hard to look at something where you're like oh this is just neutral Hmm. you know that that's just not at least in the u.s not at all part of the language except Mm -hmm. in i would say the sort of like adult autistic community I think, in a sense, monotropism is inextricable from the neurodiversity paradigm. You know, it. My mum was talking about neurodiversity before the word neurodiversity existed. She wasn't the only one. Yeah, at a basic level, approaching autism from the position that autistic people are different, and that's interesting and important, but it doesn't automatically mean that we're wrong. Um, is a, is a, a major challenge to the entire sort of psychiatric worldview you know things that are only put in the dsm um or the icd if they're seen as disorders um as a general rule dsm uh, diagnosis diagnoses I should, I should maybe spell this out so the, it, it's it's the diagnostic and statistical manual it's the the main diagnostic manual used by psychiatrists in the US and in some part, some other parts of the world, mostly English speaking countries, um, but the ICD, the International Catalogue of Diseases, that might be slightly wrong. sounds right. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's worth just checking that. Hang on. Catalogue is is weird, isn't it? It's International Classification of Diseases. Okay. There we go. Okay. So uh, the ICD, the International Classification of Diseases, is the main manual used by psychiatrists in most of the rest of the world. Um, we're in a slightly weird position in the UK where both manuals are used by different people, different organisations. Anyway, they, they generally have this sort of added caveat for diagnoses that also it causes major problems with day-to-day functioning. So, like, if you fit all the diagnostic criteria, but it's not causing you any problems, then officially you, you shouldn't be getting diagnosed. In the DSM. Um, which, in the DSM, yeah. 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 Um, which is sort of, in a way, it's fundamental to the whole approach. Like the idea is that it's not psychiatrist's business to identify things which aren't problems. But that means that by definition, everything in there is a problem, um, which has all kinds of frankly horrible knock on effects. Um, like, you know, autistic people not being diagnosed because they're basically coping. 
And then a few years later, maybe they're not coping anymore, but they've been denied a diagnosis now. Right. Or just being Um, diagnosed with depression recurrently as they're going through burnout, for example, you know, or in my case, having a lot of depression and anxiety that were entirely fixed by structural changes. Like they were not inherent to my brain. They were structural problems in my life. Yeah. 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 So monotropism gives us a way of understanding how some people are different from others in the way that we process and experience the world, um, which doesn't rely on an assumption of disease or disorder or even disability. Like, um, you know, I think autistic people are generally disabled, but defining it in such a way that if we're not disabled, then we're not autistic. Um, again, it's it's problematic. So Jamie Knight, the accessibility expert you might know him as jamie and lion because he's always with his lion um he has described monotropism as the autism equivalent of queer for for homosexuality in that it's not framed by psychiatrists you know it it, homosexuality used to be in the dsm and other diagnostic diagnostic manuals it was defined from the outside um you know, for a while, you could only be diagnosed as gay if it was causing you problems in your day-to-day functioning, which, like, okay, um, that's that's it. that's interesting, right? But yeah, you can be monotropic, and I think it can help you to understand yourself, to, to know that some people are just much more monotropic than others, whether or not you identify with the label of autism, uh, and whether or not you meet the diagnostic criteria for autism, because I think that because of the, the way that autism is currently defined by psychiatrists it's quite possible for someone to be actually really quite monotropic and just not meet the criteria because they happen to have been very interested in people from an early age for example totally so they they don't have a sufficient degree of um social communication difficulties right and it's not reaching that level of problem according to the dsm Another yeah. thing I see a lot, like a, one reason I like monotropism as a as a thing to explore and sort of see where you are on the <laughs> on the spectrum of it, is that you know there are folks who, like in my family, for example, having six siblings, um, and I think think right now five of us are being medicated for ADHD. So like we all have ADHD, mm-hmm. we all have complex PTSD, which is also has a lot of overlap with that, um, but we do like have the actual sort of nervous system side of ADHD where the stimulant meds are calming which is like Mm. the thing. Also, some of us are autistic and some of us are not. And Mm. what's really, really interesting is that even my not necessarily autistic siblings probably have more monotropic traits as Mm. far as I could tell than the average population, right? So there absolutely is this overlap where say, if you've got, you know, an autistic parent or autistic siblings and you yourself, you know, even if we're just saying you don't meet the diagnostic criteria, <laughs> you know, or or you don't want to want or choose that label, or you don't feel like it really applies to you, or you've taken the autism quizzes and you're just like, yeah, I don't, I don't really score high enough to feel like this is worth looking into, but you are maybe a little bit more monotropic than average. You still, it would make sense that you would get along with autistic people better than a completely holistic and not at all monotropic person would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And another of the, the problems with the diagnostic manuals is that autism and ADHD are treated as just completely separate things. Mm-hmm. And I don't honestly think they are. Um, I Like, why are so many of us related to ADHDers if it's just a completely separate thing? Why the most autistic people qualify for a diagnosis of ADHD when it comes down to it? I think it's because ADHD is one of the ways that monotropism manifests. So um, going by the results of the, the monotropism questionnaire validation study, ADHDs are significantly more monotropic than the average, mm-hmm. um, whether or not they're autistic. So, you know, if you were to uh, arrange the the four possible combinations of autism and uh, ADHD, people with neither are the least monotropic on average. ADHDs are a bit more monotropic. Autistic people are a lot more monotropic than that. And people who fit both labels are the most monotropic on average. And I think, you know, that that's important as well. It, getting some kind of insight into why these things, which are listed as separate phenomena, 
um, seem to have this huge overlap, you know. Um, and, and it's fascinating that that's not something that you would get by reading the the, the criteria in the diagnostic manuals. Oh, of course not. Yeah. Yeah. Like ADHD is all about attention, apparently, and autism is apparently nothing to do with attention. <laughs> autism is mostly communication, social stuff. And the, I don't know, there's there's just, just a weird conglomeration of things. And then there's also this other sort of uh, question that we haven't yet touched on, but that I think is very relevant, which is that some things have probably been lumped in with both ADHD and autism that are diagnostically and and sort of because because of the observation of who is actually being given that label so like for example um uh content note for i'm about to mention a suicide risk thing if you want to skip ahead 10 seconds uh, i think it's autistic women without an intellectual disability have the highest suicide risk in that community and i remember being so struck by that because I, intellectual disability is so tied in with a lot of people's understanding of autism. And it's one of the reasons why it's considered so awful for your child to have it is because of how ableist we are about intellectual disabilities. And anyway, I, I don't have like, <laughs> there there's no big kind of point or solution around this other than just this idea that I, I feel like when we have support from within our community and when we understand ourselves and when we have explanations for our own experience, that make sense to us and that actually seem to align with our experience. For me, that took me, that made the difference for me between, well, I might kill myself one day to, no, I absolutely won't. Um, when I found out I was autistic because I was like, oh, all of these things that I thought were just sort of vague, unsolvable mental illness are actually a core part of how my brain works. And that's been so incredibly meaningful. And then monotropism, I think, is kind of another piece of that is just like, oh, this like, explains even more in an even less pathologizing way, you know, in a not at all pathologizing way, but right in, in kind of pulling me even farther out of the medical paradigm. That was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to be said about overlaps. Thing, what, is, what is autism and what isn't? Is intellectual part, disability a part of autism or have people with intellectual disabilities just been more likely to receive an assessment for autism in the past. Why are autistic people more anxious than the rest of the population? I can think of some reasons. <laughs> like maybe that maybe there's just a fundamental biological thing. But then again, maybe life is incredibly stressful for a monotropic person existing in a world that's made for polytropic people. And you mentioned CPTSD. I think it, we should talk about trauma a bit as well because yeah, definitely. A lot of the things which are associated with trauma. Um, could also be described through a lens of monotropism, and that's very interesting. People suffering from P PTSD are very prone to getting stuck in loops of thought, for example, and yeah, hyper-focusing on things, and they tend to be hyper-vigilant. Uh, all of these things which we associate with, with autism um, and which are explainable with monotropism, and I don't think we're at a stage yet where we can say why that is. Now, um, it, it's been suggested that perhaps autistic people aren't born monotropic, but we become monotropic as a response to sensory trauma early on, for example. Um, I suspect that that's not what's going on, but it's possible. Yeah, no, no. I was just going to also add that the, another theory, the one about um, brain, the brain pruning fewer connections in early, mm. early childhood, but also just sort of throughout childhood, like through the teen years. Um, that that one theory is that that might be related to exposure to inflammation in utero and in young childhood, which again, kind of has that overlap with abuse, right? So like my mom was being physically abused while pregnant with me, right? Stuff like that, where it's like, yeah, that can maybe cause some of these things, but it also doesn't explain everything because there are people who aren't experiencing that and who have totally fine and normal and happy pregnancies who still, you know, right? So it's, there, there isn't, all these theories are really interesting and I'm happy that we're talking about them, but there hasn't been one yet where it's just like a huge light bulb, like, oh my God, that's it, right? No, <laughs> and no, it's complex right, right. as well. It's very complex. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm sort of hoping for some light bulb moments down, down the road with actual serious empirical research on all of this stuff. I was going to mention dissociation as well. I've been thinking about dissociation 
quite a lot since Nat Tipman's talk at Hawkscape last year. Um, autistic people seem to be quite prone to dissociating. And that, again, is quite difficult to unpick from monotropism. Because if you're just hyper-focused on something, in a sense, that is inherently dissociative like you're tuning out everything else you're you know when you're in the flow state you are you know you become the task um you lose track of basically everything else famously um and i i think you know one one way of thinking about monotropism is that monotropic people are much more prone to entering flow states more easily yeah um all, all that that implies yeah. Was there anything else um, you wanted to add about the trauma overlap? I know it's a huge, huge topic, but. Yeah, the massive one. The other thing is that maybe monotropic people are more prone to trauma mm -hmm. um, because, you know, because we experience things intensely uh, and because we have brains which lend themselves to going in loops, to keeping returning back to things. Um, and on top of that, you know, we, we are autistic um we have all of the social things which come from being monotropic in a society that doesn't expect it right we tend to be more isolated we tend to be less connected with those around us especially um i think monotropic people from polytropic families um you know very often our trauma is invalidated or you know our, our pain is not taken seriously autistic people tend to be misread by those around them and connecting with people is one of the main protective things against long-term trauma damage. Yeah. And all of the research around, you know, kids who experience objectively traumatic events, like witnessing the death of a loved one, but it just does not turn into PTSD. If you have a stable, nurturing, uh, usually adult, but, you know, the kind of important figure in your life who sort of sees and validates what you're going through and is able to like reflect it back to you in a meaningful way. I don't remember how that's put in sort of the, the actual research, but that was my kind of takeaway is like, you need to be, what you're going through needs to be reflected back to you in a way that makes sense to you. And that's two-way communication, right? That's, it's not just someone getting it. They have to get it and be able to reflect it back to you in a way that makes sense to you. And that is so much less likely to happen for uh, I mean, especially a multiply neurodivergent kid, right? Or if you're already traumatized and it's harder for you to take in that love and care and attention from a potential authority figure. Yeah, Again, huge topic. <laughs> yeah. So another sort of big question topic thing, and maybe we can sort of end on this is what you're hoping we're headed towards with all of this. What's your sort of imagined ideal future <laughs> with this theory and how it fits into people's lives and how it fits into the community or just anything around that? There's so much. One thing is that I would like for every person who is identified as autistic or as possibly autistic to hear about monotropism, to hear about it through that lens, because as it stands, most of the things that people hear about autism when they're first learning about it are horrible and often wildly misleading. You know, people are still taught that autistic people lack empathy in spite of years of evidence to the contrary. Doctors still act as if it's just natural for autistic people to be anxious rather than understanding the factors that make us more anxious and how to reduce them. So there's that. On some level, I wonder if monotropism will end up displacing um, one or more existing diagnostic categories. You know, it's not quite the same thing as autism, but is it a more useful idea? I, I think it is, it's likely to be. I don't know. Um, we need more research on so many things. Um, it will be fascinating to look at whether some professions are more inhabited by monotropic people than others. Are there, are there yes, professions yes, that are. are almost exclusively <laughs> inhabited by very polytropic people? Um, I'm going to throw human resources out there. I don't oh know. My God. Like, I could be wrong. Uh, um, are parents likely to be less monotropic after they've had kids? Because they kind of have to be. 
um, how how much does monotropism vary during a lifetime, depending on life circumstances and development? What is the connection with trauma, or what are the connections with trauma? Where does ADHD fit into this picture? Um, what about other kinds of neurodivergence? Are dyspraxic people more monotropic than the rest of the population? Um, because you know, dyspraxia is also referred to as um, developmental coordination disorder, and coordination is fundamentally something that's difficult if you have a monotropic cognitive style. Um, yeah, I was never diagnosed with it, but I'm pretty sure I'm dyspraxic. Yeah, same. Um, it just it fits, you know. Uh, and and most autistic people are uncoordinated, uh, certainly as kids. And, you know, I, I work with a lot of autistic kids and it's striking how movement is one of the things that marks out autistic people. But it's not actually really represented. It's not reflected in the diagnostic criteria uh, other than through the, the lens of um, restricted and repetitive behaviours. But, yeah, we move differently, typically. I think that's that's very interesting and there's so much more work to be done on autism and movement I think about how team sports generally assume polytropic processing mm -hmm. um, I know that a lot of autistic people you know love to be active but we've get massively turned off sports at school because it's all about team sports or overwhelmingly it's about team mm -hmm. sports and that means like keeping track of so many different interests at any given time um, until you get sufficiently good that it all feels like one thing that ties together because that is uh, something I possibly should have brought up earlier about monotropic experience that um, as long as something feels like it has many separate moving parts that you need to keep track of independently it's a struggle for a monotropic person so um, for example keeping track of all of the various channels of communication between you and another person tends to be very, very difficult for autistic kids. Yeah. As we get older, it tends to get easier because we process it as more of a unified whole. Um, and, you know, autistic people quite often become things like therapists or, you know, professions where we're working with people and we actually need to get pretty good at reading them and taking all that stuff but it, it just takes a lot of practice to get to that point where we've sort of chunk it all sufficiently that it feels like a, a unified thing and one interest and we can deal with it um which requires a lot of effort and processing time and i just want to point that out that you know yeah. this is not something that just happens this is something we're working on very very hard yeah. and that that labor is not seen or validated or understood as no. like a reason that we should be tired <laughs> yeah 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 which which brings us back to the team sports thing because another aspect of that is that what tends to happen in the playground i think is that kids are given like a very rough idea of what the rules are supposed to be and then expect to just get on with it oh. and monotropic kids who took in like half of that explanation and now they're just standing on a field surrounded by 20 kids and there's a ball flying around um yeah there's a there's a whole social aspect to, to why PE and physical activity um particularly in a school context but also in a social context tend to be deeply inaccessible for a lot of autistic people and um as a society and certainly our education system um we just don't account for that adequately mm -hmm. so the result is that many many autistic people who might get on great with physical activity with the right outlet don't because yeah. and then we've also got that fun overlap with ehlers danlos which i also have and how if you don't build muscle maintain muscle you know then you're more likely to then you're more injury prone and so i've had you know hu huge swaths of my life where because i just didn't have the muscle tone i couldn't do the physical stuff and anyway it's just this this cycle. yeah 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 so so many people are are so many autistic and otherwise neurodivergent people are hypermobile and or EDS. Mm -hmm. um, and why? Why is that? Yeah. Uh, another <laughs> another like avenue of exploration that I'd like to see research yeah. going into is is that like um I, you know it'd be fun to just correlate monotropism scores with um whatever it's called, is it the, the Bainton scale or something? The, mm -hmm. the, the sort of standards, how hypermobile are you test? Yeah, like PS at the end of the quiz, like do this. <laughs> yeah. Let us know your score. <laughs>
Um, yeah, and, and and why? Like, is it like my my? I don't know. It's got, it's got to be something in the brain, right? For some reason, having different connective tissue makes your brain operate a bit differently. It's probably something to do with blood vessels, but that's about as far as I've got. Yeah. And one of the reasons to kind of make a, a broader point, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about supporting in particular ADHD folks, but, you know, in general, neurodivergent and disabled folks in being able to create a life that allows them to pursue their interests and passions is that we're probably going to be some of the researchers that do some of this research, right? We're like, we're, <laughs> we're very passionate about these questions. And if we can, you know, get to the point where, you know, for folks who want to be in say clinical research where that can actually happen, like that's what one of my siblings is interested in, who is autistic is um, they're applying to grad school, but they're particularly interested in the research side and not just the therapeutic side. So it, you know, I'm just like, oh, awesome. Like, yeah, you'd be fucking great at <laughs> going and asking these questions and asking them in a way that, um, you know, part of the problem in research is when the questions are not asked in the right way, right? That's the problem with a lot of existing autism and ADHD research is that mm -hmm. the questions are starting from a frame of you are broken. All of this is a huge problem. And like, we're only looking for the negative basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that results in all kinds of ridiculous things, like the same interpretation um of yeah autistic people are just a bit broken um from completely opposite results like I, yep. I, there, there was a paper out um just a couple of weeks ago about verbal fluency in autism which is something that has been fairly heavily researched for some decades um and it's looking at reframing the results of a lot of that research through the lens of monotropism mm. um, and it turns out that practically every study you can interpret it completely differently like if your assumption is that autistic people are likely to have sort of patchy knowledge where we're very knowledgeable about the things that we're particularly interested in and likely to not know about some other things like yeah sure on average that's gonna result in lower verbal fluency scores if if we're being asked to name for example um 50 or, or you know, how, as many animals as we can in a minute. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in animals, <laughs> then you've got an advantage. If you're not, then you have a disadvantage. And what, what the results have tended to show over the decades is that um, on average, autistic people score lower for verbal fluency, which is basically just reeling off members of a category. Mm -hmm. But a significant fraction of those tested actually score significantly higher than the rest of the population, which is is interesting but as far as i could see none of the studies that they looked at really took that seriously or thought that that was worth investigating further um and yeah there, some of the results pointed towards like greater verbal fluency in some areas and whatever the results were it was always interpreted in such a way that the autistic people were bad at stuff <laughs> yeah exactly um, and, and that's, that's just one of the ways that academia is inaccessible to monotropic people, which is bizarre because academia has always attracted monotropic people. Yeah. But there's been a, a trend in the last few decades, more and more towards expecting academics to do many, many different things, including lots of networking, mm -hmm. constant publishing, teaching and research, right. um, all of which make it harder for monotropic people who are, you know, we tend to have islands of skill and things that we're quite bad at um so the more that academia demands generalists the worse it is for for monotropic people well and it's so weird too because academic the actual research side of it is becoming more and more siloed and more and more specific sort of mm -hmm. the more research mm -hmm. we have the more out on the fringes and, and nubbly your <laughs> particular research becomes so it's so weird that on the sort of um social day-to-day -day side that academia is requiring more general. It just doesn't make sense at all. It's very silly. And, and I know a lot of, a lot of my friends who work in academia who are uh, autistic and ADHD in particular are just like, why is this happening to me? Like, why am I being treated like this? Yeah. 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 It, it, it's, it's super frustrating that it, it, academia feels like it should be such an obvious beautiful destination for mm -hmm. people who love to research yeah, and to, you know, fanatically learn all that they can about a particular subject and who look at things 
deeply and from a different angle from most other people. But instead, we have academia as it exists today. Yeah. Something I would love for you to be able to kind of uh, leave people with is, so we're obviously going to link to a monotropism questionnaire so people can take a look at it. One of the pieces of feedback I get sometimes when people take it is, you know, and this is always happens when, because autistic people are very different, looking at something going, some of these questions don't make sense to me. I have no idea how to answer this, right? Um, so there's there's that, but then there's also, I think at the, at the broad level, um, this question of, but what if I have a bunch of different interests, right? Because a lot of us do have but but it, it comes, I can partly answer that by saying that, first of all, they can cycle through over time, but also that there is this sort of broader, like you were talking about, when your brain kind of like turns it all into one thing or sort of they're connected in different ways. Mm -hmm. the, but the, the questionnaire in particular, and then also if people are listening to this and going, eh, I don't need to take the questionnaire, I have so many interests, right? That, that probably isn't me. I'm just curious <laughs> what you might say to people if they are thinking about whether to take the questionnaire and then sort of how to approach it if they find the questions themselves um, not perfectly aligned with how they think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no questionnaire can be perfectly aligned with how everyone thinks. <laughs> Most of the feedback that we've had about the questionnaire has been that it's far easier to make sense of and far less ambiguous than most autistic you know, most autism questionnaires um but yeah there are definitely questions in there which i wish we phrased a bit differently and which probably will be rephrased in a future iteration as for different interests yeah it's i've known people to hear about monotropism and reject it as a description for themselves because they feel like they have broad interests and i kind of relate to that um because yeah i'm interested in practically everything <laughs> apart from team sports <laughs> totally off my radar um i find things fascinating um and yeah when something captures my attention it pulls me in and i am nodding yeah, vigorously yeah there, there are <laughs> themes throughout my life like i'm very interested in science in particular uh things that tie to physics especially but that's less and less true over the years like you know my, my i studied physics and philosophy at university and then um computer games engineering and i've ended up being a largely a chemistry teacher for most of the last decade uh with a passionate interest in natural history um but yeah partly it's it's because it all ties together and you know one of the reasons why I took physics and philosophy for my first degree was because that ties everything together. <laughs> and I love that. Like, I also love physics. Up, yeah. And yeah, it, it does tie so many things together. Back to that thing of when it feels like there are too many things to keep track of at once, it's very stressful and confusing. If you can tie them together, it feels better. <laughs> for a monotropic person so um a lot of us go for things which allow us to be sort of systematic about thinking about things and see how things tie together um and yeah often we make connections that other people would miss i think i've gone off topic there no no it's totally i i, I wanted to make that point because i know a lot of people listening have a lot of interests both over time and currently right in, in fact there it's quite likely that people listening have uh, more things on their plate or on their mind than they could possibly do in one lifetime, even if they became incredibly perfectly organized and never procrastinated a single time again, which is also not how our brains work, right? Because when we, when we come across an interest, like I will go on rabbit holes, researching things that are, that seem totally unrelated to anything at the surface, but it's because it, it sparked some particular thought in my mind of like, oh, I wonder if this thing that I am interested in is actually at the bottom of all of this. Like if this is sort of the core thing underneath and one of the other funny, well, funny to me in retrospect, uh, having gotten an incorrect bipolar diagnosis, but when you start looking at these systematic things and talking about them, people think you're mentally ill <laughs> if they are not also monotropic. <laughs> it's quite common yeah. for people to be like, why are you talking about these two totally distant things as though they're connected anyway? So that's another sort of communication barrier issue, I think, is that if you are thinking in this systematic way, and if you have a lot of interests, uh, it can be, it's very easy to get to the point. And I remember a couple of moments in childhood where I started really curbing my vocabulary and just the way I was speaking because adults were so consistently 
looking at me like I was absolutely nuts. <laughs> or just a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it partly connects with with the urge to for things to make sense, right? Like you learn all of these words which allow you to express things very precisely. I know. So it's not what most people are looking for. It's not my fault that they couldn't understand me. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I just, yeah, I wanted to touch on that, that kind of topic of a lot of interests or, or sort of, you know, diving into different things. Um, I still, if you're, if you're listening to this and if you identify with, you know, ADHD, autism or ADHD, any of those things, or if anyone in your family is any of those things, I think it's very interesting to take the monotropism quiz and just, and just kind of see what happens. Right. And also, to if you're if you're very high masking, the other kind of thing I wanted to add is that it's pretty common to uh, answer questionnaires like this differently when you are masking less. I found that pretty strongly. Um, that like the first autism quizzes I took, I got lower scores because in my head I was like, no, I don't have a problem with this. I have a system, <laughs> right? But the <laughs> system was to address the problem. <laughs> One more thing I'd add is about distractibility because i think sometimes adhd is sound think that monotropism sounds like that it doesn't describe them because they tend to jump between different topics a lot um and that that, that was me pretty much but then i realized that like yes i jump between topics but it's because something captures my attention and when something captures my attention i enter a new attention tunnel and leave behind all the other stuff so like i thought that i was fairly polytropic but i'm i'm really not i i'm i'm just a serial monotropist i i jump from one thing to another <laughs> but every time that i do that i tend to leave the other stuff behind um and there's the whole thing of jumping about within an attention tunnel, which can right. look like you're getting terribly distracted, but actually it's, you know, it's all closely tied together in your head. Yeah. And it's also, it's such a subjective experience that it's hard to, I don't know, I, something I think about a lot is how uh, the main way I think solipsism applies to me is in assuming that other people think generally the way that I do or sort of in, in the way that I do. And that's the really interesting thing I think about monotropism when I, when I realized how far on one end of the bell curve I am with it is that I was just some ways that I assume most people probably process and think are just like, I'm, I'm so far off, <laughs> but you can't tell that from the inside. And we don't question people about these things, right? My example for this is I wore shoes that were too big until I was about 25 because I grew up poor and I was just getting hand-me-down shoes and my mom never got my shoes, my feet sized. And so it wasn't until adulthood when I said to someone, you know how shoes kind of flop around? And they were like, what? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not how shoes work. But it's such, I think it's such a good analogy for, we don't ask these really basic questions about our experience because we just assume that our experience is like, more or less in line with just sort of the general experience that most people are having. And then when you yeah. realize it's really, really not, and I started buying shoes that fit, I was like, really? I didn't have to be like having my shoes fall off in the street all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And everyone does this to some degree. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we assume that other people are having pretty much the same sort of experiences, but it's much harder for some people to get away with that than others. Mm -hmm. But with something like autism it, and neurodivergence more generally, because we we talk so little, or we have historically talked so little about the ways that different people's fundamental processing styles and sensory experiences and all the rest um, are vary, it's very difficult to get a, ha a handle on that. And I think that has changed to a really quite impressive degree, actually, in the last five to 10 years. I think there's been a lot more discussion of you know, differences in how people process and experience things. Like the fact that um, nobody had heard of aphantasia seemingly before about five years ago. And now a lot of people are like, wait, <laughs> you see you what picture now? things in your head? <laughs> yeah. I thought that was a and metaphor. It's, you know, it's, really, it's really healthy that we're, we are talking about this stuff more. Um, and yet the, the way that autism has been described historically has just been much less useful for that than 
nootropic framing um because actually like social interaction and rigidity of thinking are they don't really represent inner experiences they you know they're mm -hmm. talking about behavior um, right, and right, right. to a extent interactions rather than getting at the far the the internal experience, the, the fundamental differences in how you process and experience the world. That feels like a really beautiful note to end on. Yeah. And the more that we recognize, and I would say celebrate the fundamental differences in how we process and see the world, you know, I, one of the things I'm really happy about right now, even though we have a lot more work to do is the young people who are recognizing these things from a younger age. And, you know, kids getting toward a diagnosis and then one of their parents getting diagnosed. So, you know, a lot of people my age are a little older who are, uh, you know, realizing for the first time that this describes them as well. And how, you know, in a lot of cases, this is leading to hopefully much, much less traumatized neurodivergent kids because they're recognizing it earlier. They're having their experience, you know, validated and seen in a way and, and getting more support earlier. And that makes such a difference. Um, I've even seen the difference with my own siblings, even though all of us had a shitty childhood, but like, you know, the ones who, the, the youngest ones who sort of got more of the message of, um, you know, this should not be happening. This is, this is not okay. Um, it's so different to just have that experience from a young age, I think. So, um, yeah, I think, I think all of this work in the world to recognize, explain, celebrate, help people, you know, understand their own experience and, and get their own needs met more and more. It's, it's not a, it's not an on or off switch. It's just a, a journey that we're all on. And what I've found for folks is that every step in that direction is helpful. Even if it feels really small and insignificant, every step toward understanding yourself, every step toward getting your needs met, every step toward communicating your needs even if they're not being met yet, but you just being able to say, this is what I know that I need. And this is what I'm working toward. All of those steps are meaningful for mental health and physical health, honestly, in the long run. And yeah, I'm just, I'm so happy for this work in the world. that's helping people understand themselves more. Me too. We've come such a long way and it, it, mm -hmm. it's sometimes hard to keep track of that because we still have such a long way to go, yeah. but we're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. And again, even just, just people recognizing, oh, this is a fucking problem. Like <laughs> the way that we're treating people, not the autism itself, <laughs> you know, the, to be clear uh, that, you know, that, that we're, we're recognizing, you know, that autistic people being underemployed, underpaid, underhoused, mm -hmm. right. All of these issues. Um, that, from healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. That these, and that these are not our fault or that because we're not communicating well, it's because our needs are not being recognized, taken seriously, and we're not receiving the support that we need. All of that, again, it doesn't solve the problem for the folks who are struggling with all of those things. But I feel like the the awareness that like, it's not me, I am not the problem is at least, for me at least, a lot more energizing than, well, fuck it. Like, I guess, you know, I just can't do this, which is very different than the system is not suited to help me do this in a way that works for me. Yeah, yeah. Turns out we're not just bad at life. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out life is hard and we can tell. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much um, for taking the time and for sharing. How would you like people to find you or connect with your work? Go to monotropism.org to learn about monotropism. Um, my own website is oolong.co.uk, like the tea. Um, tea was one of one of my main monotropic interests for many many years. Um, I love it, but I I think about it less now. <laughs> um, and I'm I'm all over social media if you're into that kind of thing. Awesome, yeah. We will put all those links in the show notes as well as a couple of the things you've mentioned. I'm also going to add um, Wen's course the monotropism and, and autism course, um, which I did the, there's like a free version of it. I think it's free for 90 days and then it disappears if you haven't done it by then. But anyway, that's, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll share that. And yeah, thank you so much. This has been amazing. And I'm probably going to, I'm, I'm saying this out loud to remind myself that I want to do a follow-up episode to 
go into just some more practical details of kind of what this looks like, because I know sometimes from the broad view, it could be hard to really understand how this relates to me. So if you're listening and you're just like, eh, I don't know if I want to take the quiz, that's fine. Wait, wait for the uh, couple of episodes after this, hearing me talk about the details and maybe that will um, spark something for you. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here and taking a moment for yourself. I hope the episode sparks some ideas or possibilities for your own journey. If you're looking for gentle ongoing support, I invite you to join the Like Your Brain community. It's a non-hierarchical and no pressure space to share our lived experiences together and learn from each other. Ask authentic questions, share your own wisdom, and be a part of building a safer space for folks with identities that are often marginalized. And if you're not yet ready to be seen in a group space, we've all been there, you can join the podcast support tier, which has a private podcast feed with some of the learnings from Like Your Brain and additional podcast content. So you can absorb on your own terms and timeline. We're here whenever you're ready. The link is in the show notes or at patreon.com slash Mattia. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash M-A-T-T-I-A. Have a great week.